This podcast is intended for a mature audience. Listener discretion is advised. A quick reminder that if you haven't already listened to part one of this story, you might want to before continuing. In 2002, a series of random yet connected shootings and armed robberies were occurring with disturbing frequency across the United States. By October 23rd, 16 people had been killed and almost a dozen others injured from Washington State to Alabama. Authorities had been able to link incidents in Florida and Georgia, but it was the residents of Maryland, Virginia, and Washington, D.C. that were terrorized most of all. In just a three-week period alone, 10 unsuspecting people were gunned down as they went about their lives. No one was safe. It had taken law enforcement months to identify potential suspects, and locating them would be just as challenging. The number of people killed, and the randomness with which the shooters picked their targets, was absolutely terrifying. It created widespread fear and paranoia, as no one knew if they would be the next victim. Nothing like this has ever happened in Montgomery County. Uh, this is a very safe community. Uh, our homicide rate just increased by 25% in one day. For detectives working the case, there was too much at stake for them to get anything wrong. If they did, it could not only jeopardize the investigation, but also the public's ongoing safety. The investigation, not surprisingly, was high profile and had been the focus of intense media coverage for weeks. It was also extremely complex, with more than just a few moving parts. To manage the incredible amount of information, numerous police departments, the FBI, ATF, and the Secret Service, were all working together to bring those responsible to justice. With a mounting body count, however, it was a race against the clock. My name is Eric Crosby. Welcome to True. Nine one one. What's your emergency? I think my window just got shot. Okay. Are you injured? I I don't feel anything because I just got so scared because I just heard a big bang and the window shattered. Almost immediately after each shooting was reported, police moved as quickly as they could to close off roads in the area. They established checkpoints to inspect vehicles and questioned drivers about their movements. Had they seen or heard anything suspicious? Every bit of information, no matter how seemingly trivial, could lead to the end of the siege. But authorities were not relying solely on tips from the public. They had been working overtime analyzing and comparing forensic evidence in an effort to identify the killer or killers. By mid-October, a match had been found between fingerprints at the September shooting in Montgomery, Alabama, and those recovered from the shooting in Bowie, Maryland, just over two weeks later. 
It turned out the culprit had provided fingerprints to U.S. immigration officials when he moved to the country. The name on record was Lee Boyd Malvo. 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 Authorities finally knew who they were looking for. What they were not prepared for was his age. At only 17 years old, Lee Malvo had become one of the country's most prolific juvenile serial killers. However, to investigators, he seemed a bit too young to be solely responsible for the sustained carnage across such a broad area. As detectives looked further into his background, it didn't take long before they found a likely accomplice. A man by the name of John Allen Muhammad appeared to share a strong connection with the teenager. The more investigators learned about him, the more questions they had, starting with his real name. John Allen Muhammad was born John Allen Williams in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, on December 31, 1960. When he was only three years old, his mother died of cancer. He was left to care for the family after his father abandoned them when he was still a child. At 18, he enlisted in the Louisiana National Guard, and three years later, in 1981, he married his girlfriend, Carol. The following year, the couple welcomed a son. They were doing well, but the happiness would not last long. In 1985, John took a different direction with his life. He converted to Islam and changed his last name to Muhammad. A year later, he and Carol divorced. John continued to serve in the army and saw action overseas during Operation Desert Storm. He received numerous medals, including the Southwest Asia Service Medal and the Kuwait Liberation Medal. His service ended in 1994 after being honorably discharged. By now, John Allen Muhammad had married again, this time to a woman named Mildred Green. The couple went on to have three children, and like his last marriage, it was not a happy one. John was controlling and abusive, making Mildred and their kids' lives miserable. After retiring from the army, he started two very different businesses. One was an auto repair shop, and the other was a karate school. Both were unsuccessful. In late 1999, Mildred filed for divorce. She also filed a restraining order against John, which was granted by the court. In March the following year, John picked up his kids from school and fled south to the island of Antigua. It was while in the Caribbean that he first met a woman named Una James and her son, Lee Malvo. Lee was born on February 18, 1985, in Kingston, Jamaica. When he was only five years old, his parents split up, and he and his mother moved in with an aunt. During his early teen years, Lee did well at school, and often attended church with his mother. This is where they met John Allen Muhammad. Lee's mother was physically abusive toward him, and their relationship was, at best, dysfunctional. The teen desperately needed a positive role model in his life. While Una and John were becoming close friends, his objective with Lee was just downright sinister. 
He wanted the young man to be completely dependent on him, and worked hard to make that happen. John helped Una falsify immigration documents, allowing her and Lee to move to the U.S. in 2001. In the middle of that same year, John returned to the U.S. with his kids. Una had chosen to live in Florida and was settling in nicely. But Lee found his new surroundings challenging and made it clear that he wanted to leave. John was now living across the country in Washington State, which is exactly where Lee went. When Lee arrived, he was welcomed with open arms. John was the father figure the teenager had been missing for most of his life. His new caretaker wasted no time converting him to Islam and indoctrinating the young man to his own radical views. By this time, law enforcement and officials from child welfare had been alerted that John and Mildred's children were back in the country. Authorities paid John a visit and returned the kids to their mother, who was now living in Maryland. His children may have left, but Lee Malvo wasn't going anywhere. Why would he? The teenager had finally found a role model. Also, most people thought they were father and son, anyway. They certainly never questioned the relationship at the various homeless shelters where he and John often stayed. The transient lifestyle was designed to socially isolate the young man and prevent him from making any real connections. John also implemented a military-style schedule for Lee, subjecting him to rigorous daily workouts. He was given intensive training in target shooting, using a wide range of firearms. Because of John's criminal record and the fact that Lee was a minor, both were prohibited from buying or using guns. So, Lee stole a Bushmaster semi-automatic rifle from a gun store in Tacoma, Washington, and used that for his training. With a powerful scope attached, he could hit targets around 1,000 feet away. As investigators focused on John's background, they learned that in September 2002, he purchased a blue 1990 Chevrolet Caprice from a dealership in New Jersey. I kind of got a, a like a weird gut feeling that I should just, you know, this guy doesn't want me to ask him any questions, so it's none of my business. He's just here to buy the car. I'm just going to, you know, sell him the car. When they checked the license plate, they realized it had actually been entered into the database several times by numerous police departments throughout the investigation. But because law enforcement was so focused on a white box truck or white van, the blue four-door sedan was never pulled over. The public was quickly alerted to be on the lookout for the Chevy Caprice with possible New Jersey plates. There's now a firm vehicle alert. No box truck, no Chevy Astro, no white vehicle at all. Instead, a dark 1990 Chevrolet Caprice car. Police are asking anybody who sees that vehicle to call 911 immediately. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about 
how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford anything, wherever you listen. Late in the evening on October 23rd, law enforcement broadcast a message directly to the suspects. The Montgomery County Police Chief was clearly referencing specific communications from the killers. He said, You have indicated that you want us to do and say certain things. You have asked us to say, We have caught the sniper like a duck in a noose. We understand that hearing us say this is important to you. The public's awareness concerning the updated vehicle description paid off. A refrigeration technician was driving home from a late shift when he pulled into a rest stop near Interstate 70 in Frederick County, Maryland. It was almost midnight, and the man was tired. But when he realized that a dark blue Caprice with New Jersey license plates was parked next to him, he woke up pretty quickly. The man immediately called 911 to report the sighting. With live updates being provided by the caller, authorities moved in on the area. It took almost three hours before everyone was in place and ready to make the arrest. They had blocked off every potential exit from the rest area. The SWAT team had their weapons trained on the vehicle. Their hope was to do this without incident, but they were prepared to use lethal force if necessary. As they silently advanced on the car, they saw right away that its occupants were asleep, completely unaware of their impending capture. As hoped, John Muhammad and Lee Malvo were taken into custody without incident. They were both held on federal charges of possessing weapons. Police have spent a lot of time in these days trying to learn what the suspects were doing, where they were staying during their three-week killing spree. What they say they've learned is they appear to be very low on money, largely living out of the car. They still say they have no real idea of what their motive was. If police had any doubt they apprehended the right people, all they had to do was look inside their car. When they did, investigators found the stolen Bushmaster rifle, ammunition, a rifle scope, bipod, two-way radios, and a digital voice recorder. Fingerprints and DNA from both suspects were found on the rifle. Police also found a laptop loaded with street maps of the various crime scenes. But the most shocking discovery was not what was inside the vehicle. It was what they had done to the vehicle. Modifications had been made to the back seat that enabled someone to crawl inside the trunk and lie down flat while remaining completely undetected. Authorities realized the shootings had been committed not out of the windows, as they naturally assumed, but by one of them lying in the trunk and aiming out a small hole next to the license plate. The cold reality of its singular purpose made the setup absolutely horrifying. The rifle found inside the vehicle was eventually linked to 11 of the shootings. On October 25, 2002, 
Maryland prosecutors announced that John and Lee had been charged with six counts of first-degree murder, terrorism, conspiracy, and the illegal use of a firearm. They also made it clear the state would be seeking the death penalty against John. Four days later, Virginia filed charges of capital murder against the pair. On January 16, 2003, a civil lawsuit was filed on behalf of many of the survivors and families of the victims. The suit was against both the store where Lee stole the rifle and the gun manufacturer, Bushmaster Firearms. It claimed that Bushmaster was negligent in its decision to sell guns to an outlet it knew had questionable sales practices and record-keeping. In July 2003, the owner of the gun store had his federal firearms license revoked by the ATF. The jousting has begun between state prosecutors and federal prosecutors in three states between who will bring these men to trial and in what order. That October, criminal proceedings began in Virginia for the murder of Dean Myers. Prosecutors argued that John's plan all along was to extort millions of dollars from the government, and the shootings were just a way to get the money. A theory also emerged that even though John targeted random strangers, the focus of his hatred was toward his second wife, Mildred. He blamed her for taking away his children, and was planning to kill her as his final victim. With a string of unrelated targets leading up to her murder, John thought investigators would blame the unknown sniper. During the trial, Lee Malvo testified for the prosecution. He claimed that while he pulled the trigger in every murder, he did it while under John's influence and control. He told the court that he had been brainwashed to believe that the money John planned to extort would be spent training an army of marginalized kids to be terrorists. The defense team argued that since John didn't physically shoot the victim, the charge of capital murder should be dropped. Despite suggestions that Lee was also motivated by terrorist ideology, most believed that he did it out of the simple desire to please John. He pleaded not guilty by reason of insanity on the grounds that he was under John's complete control. He became master puppeteer. He was in control. He was certain of himself. And it was very subtle. It wasn't violent at all. It was, it's, I mean, it's like what a pimp does to a woman. This is, it, that's the best description I can offer. On November 17, 2003, John Allen Muhammad was convicted of capital murder, conspiracy to commit murder, and the illegal use of a firearm. Several months later, in March 2004, the court agreed with the jury's unanimous recommendation that John be sentenced to death. Six months later, Lee pleaded guilty to the murder of Kenneth Bridges in order to avoid a potential death sentence. He also confessed to shooting Kenya Cook back in February 2002, which had remained unsolved. It turned out that Kenya Cook was not a random target. Her aunt had been friends with John's ex-wife Mildred and was likely the intended victim. John believed that she convinced Mildred to end the marriage and blamed her for their divorce. 
Given the list of federal indictments, Washington state prosecutors ultimately chose not to proceed with charges against Lee for Kenya's murder. In late 2004, the civil suit against the gun shop and the manufacturer was settled out of court for $2.5 million. In March 2005, the capital murder case against Lee in Virginia was dropped. The Virginia Supreme Court ruled that the now 20-year-old was exempt from being sentenced to death because he was only 17 when the murders were committed. With the trial now over in Virginia, it was time for the pair to face the charges in Maryland. Maryland's governor said today he will consider the death penalty, despite a moratorium since May. When you have something uh, this horrendous, uh, it seems to me that uh, if there is no question whatsoever uh, about the guilt, uh, that this is the type of uh, incident uh, for which that legislation was written. Again, Lee cooperated with prosecutors agreeing to testify against John in return for receiving immunity. In May 2006, during John's trial, Lee admitted to committing 17 murders across the country. But now, Lee told the court that, actually, he was not the shooter in every case. It was apparently out of a misguided sense of loyalty that he wanted to take the fall for John. He hoped it would save his mentor from getting the death sentence. During the trial, Lee cooperated fully, giving the court a full account of how every murder had unfolded. He testified that John's initial plan was to kill six white people a day over a 30-day period. He then planned to murder a pregnant woman, followed by a Baltimore police officer. Lee's testimony was compelling and totally devastating to John's defense. The Maryland court found him guilty of six counts of murder, and handed down a sentence of six consecutive life terms without the possibility of parole. Given John had already been sentenced to death in Virginia, like the state of Washington, Alabama, Arizona, and Louisiana, all decided not to proceed with the charges against him. In April 2008, John appealed the ruling in Virginia, claiming that due to a brain injury, he was not mentally competent to participate in his defense. The appeal was dismissed, and his execution date was set for November the following year. After requests for a stay of execution were denied by the U.S. Supreme Court, John Allen Muhammad was executed by lethal injection on November 10, 2009. With some of the victim's families there to witness his final moments, he declined to make a last statement. The execution of John Allen Muhammad has been carried out under the laws of the Commonwealth of Virginia. Death was pronounced at 9.11 p.m. There were no complications. Mr. Muhammad was asked if he wished to make a last statement. He did not acknowledge this or make any statement whatsoever. He came in under his own power, escorted by the officers. He seemed quiet and relaxed. After he was placed on the gurney and strapped down, he was very emotionless. He watched a bit of the procedure that was being done on him. Uh, but uh, after that was completed and the curtains were opened back up, he had his head tilt tilted slightly to the right and his eyes were closed and that's the way he remained. Things went very, very normally. 
As for Lee Malvo, over the years, he's done his best to try and distance himself from the past as the infamous DC Sniper. He became so desperate that in 2011, he submitted a request to legally change his name. The application was denied by the court. Long after John Muhammad's execution, the case, and Lee in particular, continued to make headlines. In 2012, Lee made the explosive allegation that he was actually a victim of sexual abuse at the hands of John, but that didn't seem to go anywhere. Five years later, however, the young serial killer received some good news. The U.S. Court of Appeals in Virginia had made a landmark decision. They determined that because Lee was a minor at the time of the shootings, a mandatory life sentence without parole was unconstitutional. Maryland argued the new ruling did not apply in their state. But in June 2018, the Court of Appeals upheld the Virginia decision that Lee's multiple life sentences should be dropped. In February 2020, Virginia passed a new law that allowed any inmate serving a life sentence for an offense committed before they turned 18 to apply for release if they've already served 20 years. Malvo was sentenced uh, when he was 17 for killing three people in Virginia in 2002. A judge sentenced him to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Malvo was also sentenced to life in prison in Maryland for six murders there. The new Virginia law does not affect Maryland cases. Two months later, Maryland also ruled that life sentences for juveniles were no longer permissible. Lee Malvo is currently eligible for parole in Virginia and is in the process of appealing his life sentences. It remains to be seen whether the now 37-year-old mass murderer will walk out of jail a free man two decades after terrorizing millions of people across the country. I mean, I love the monster. It's, 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 I mean, if you look up the definition, I mean, that's what a monster is. I, I was a ghoul. I was a thief. I, I, I stole people's lives. And I, I, did, I did someone else's bidding just because they said so. I mean, that is the definition of a monster. There is no rhyme or reason or sense it's a predator. It just does exactly what it does, what, it, what it's trying to do, kill. It's, I mean, in that state, in that place, I mean, that's what I was.
is a production of Imperative Entertainment. This episode of True was researched and written by Gemma Harris. The executive producer is Jason Hoke of Imperative Entertainment. The cover art and design were created by Jenna Sullivan. True was created and is produced by me. Have any comments or questions? Email us at podcasts at imperativeentertainment.com. As always, a huge thanks for listening and for your amazing reviews and ratings. I'll be back next week with another episode. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.